You're listening to the PK Experience Podcast, where I tap into the minds of today's impact players. My name is Peter King. I'm the host of the show, and my guest today is Frank Fumi. Frank is a pioneer in the youth sports industry and the founder of I-9 Sports, which is the nation's first and leading franchiser of youth leagues and camps. Since 2003, I-9 has generated over $300 million with more than 2 million participants in 900 communities across 30 states nationwide. Frank has been featured on Fox Business News. HBO Real Sports, and in dozens of publications and national news media outlets, including USA Today, Sports Illustrated, and the Wall Street Journal, to name a few. Frank sold I-9 Sports in 2017 to a private equity firm, but remains a minority shareholder and a member of the board of directors. It's a real pleasure to have Frank on the program. He is such an inspiration, and I know you're going to learn a ton from this conversation. So with that, why don't we dive into the call? Here I am with Frank Fumi. All right, I'm here with Frank Fumi. How are you doing, Frank? Doing great, Peter. Thanks for having me. Um, uh, you're welcome. I'm excited to talk to you. We uh, have a lot in common, and uh, and you've just been crushing it lately with your new book and, uh, of course, the business successes and all that. But um, most importantly, I want to hear like uh, your story, the Rex Rich's story, and helping people discover their purpose like and the passion. I'm, I'm just way into all of that, and I'm Excited to, to dive into that with you. So again, welcome to the call. Thanks. Thanks. Looking forward to it. And we've, we've established already that we may get a few barking in the background. <laughs> that is okay. It's, uh, it's, it's, how we, it's how we roll in the 21st century. You get to work from home and sometimes you got to deal with the doorbells and all that kind of stuff. So True. just as a, a quick caveat. Um, well, let's, uh, where do we begin? There's so much I want to talk to you about. Um, you uh, uh, let's start with the book, um, running with your head down. That really does, I think, um, cover the, the rags to riches story. Help us for those that don't know who you are. Tell us a little bit about who you are and how the book came to be. And let's, let's start there. Well, I'm, uh, thanks, Peter. I'm, I'm kind of most known for founding a company called I-9 Sports. We are the nation's largest youth sports league franchise in the country. Uh, let's see, we have about 150 franchisees that uh, operate in over 900 communities throughout 30 states in the U.S., uh, since 2003, we've had over, uh, see, we've had over 2 million kids play in our flag football league, soccer, basketball, t-ball leagues. Uh, I'm a guy who was super passionate about sports growing up. I was not the best athlete in the world, though I tried like anything to be, uh, you know, be a great athlete. I just didn't have the talent. But um, I had this incredible passion for sports. Um, when I got out of college, I worked in medical sales. I was miserable in that very lucrative career. And I always had this kind of yearning to kind of find my, find my purpose. Like, what am I supposed to do? And I used to hound my dad all the time about like, dad, what am I supposed to do? And he'd always tell me, don't worry, you'll figure it out. You figure it out. So lo and behold, I was able to finally break from my medical sales career, or as my dad would call it, golden handcuffs when you're making too much money and you can't leave. <laughs> I chose to leave. Um, and I started with an adult men's softball league first in New York and Long Island, where I'm from grew that league out. My wife and I moved to the Tampa Bay area in 1996, started running kids flag football programs when it, it hit me that this is a, is a great opportunity to get involved in youth sports. And then in the early 2000s, franchised I-9 Sports. And, uh, and here I am. And I've kind of gone through so many highs and lows that I'm really here to kind of share with entrepreneurs on how to get through those highs and lows, how to not just 
pursue your passion, but discovering your purpose and figuring out like, how do you, how do you deal with all this? Whether you're uh, succeeding or failing in business, I want to help people with the mindset of, of entrepreneurship. Yeah, for sure. You know, it's, it's so interesting. What a fascinating journey because I mean, on the one hand, you're making really good money doing the medical sales and you know, well, what's, What's the net natural next avenue to make a lot of money? Oh, you know, obviously men's softball, clearly. <laughs> of course. How do, you, how do you make that transition? And, and that I think is the biggest thing that a lot of people, a lot of entrepreneurs face is how do I make a transition to the thing that I actually love? There's not going to be money in sports. Like, how do you do that? So of course, walk somebody through that. Okay. And I was told that by everybody. It's true. So while I'm in medical sales, so during the week, you know, my, my full-time job was I was calling on open heart surgeons in New York city, selling open heart equipment and, and devices. And uh, on the weekends, I was playing softball with college buddies. And I was the guy who got stuck managing the team to, you know, collect the money from the guys and put us in the league and stuff. It was like a recreational bar league. But it occurred to me, Peter, while we were in these leagues, I'm like, these leagues are not being run like a business. Me And I started kind of connecting the dots. Now, again, I loved sports, loved baseball. Baseball is like my first love. And the more I started looking into these leagues that were operating that we were I was a customer of, I realized quite, quite honestly that they do, they are not applying any of the business skills. And I saw what the, what the market was opportunities that were out there. And I thought maybe I'll just kind of, I don't know, uh, maybe I'll apply some of the basic business skills that I learned in medical sales. And, and in my uh, days of working part-time for a mortgage bank, when I was in high school, like customer service, you know, <laughs> providing a really good, uh, providing value to people. So I decided I was going to start running a softball league. And I don't know, I didn't think it was going to be a, a big business. I just started on a very small scale. But the more I looked into it, um, and what I would suggest to people is be a student of your industry. I mean, be absolutely relentless to learn everything and anything you can about it. Because what I learned, and this is pre-internet days, um, I learned through going to some amateur sports conferences and reading some journals and magazines that, that the amateur sports business was highly fragmented. I had a great opportunity to um, systematize and actually create a, uh, an organized business out of something that there was so much chaos in. So I think what people need to do is, what do you like to do? What do you have passion in? There's an angle at which you can maybe do it as a business because heck, if I could find a way of doing adult men's softball as a business, there's certainly a lot other businesses out there or industries out there that you can take what you're passionate about and figure out your niche. Right. So is this something that you just quit cold turkey, the, the medical sales to do this? Or did you slowly build that up while you were still working there? Or no, I wish I I wish I quit cold turkey. I, really? I did not. Yeah, no, I stayed. I stayed running uh, still as a medical sales rep. And that kind of drove me because I was, you know, as I started getting my business off the ground, Peter, I was I was despising my medical sales career more and more. But here's what I learned. I learned that I had to grow that business out to the point where I was able to, to make that leap. And making that leap was a really, really tough decision. In mm -hmm. fact, the leap of getting to the point was about four years in where I took that leap of, okay, I'm no longer going to work medical sales. I'm going to operate my adult men's softball league full time. It happened about four years in. It happened at a Tony Robbins event. I was at a UPW in 1999. And we go through, I know you're familiar with Tony, we, we went through that, the Dickens process. And that Dickens process is a, is a really a transformational wow. yeah. um, uh, session where you 
kind of look back at if you don't make this decision or make this change, what kind of regret are you going to have five years into the future? Um, 10 years into the future, how are you going to be impacted? 20 years into the future, if you don't make that leap, if you don't make that change in your life, and to the point where it becomes so excruciatingly painful for you not to make the decision, it actually becomes more painful for you not to change, right? right? So that gave me the leap to say, that's it, I'm doing it. And I've got to tell you that when I took the leap, and ran my business full time, it was the greatest decision I ever made because there was no more safety net. Uh, it was sink or swim. Uh, I went from my first year of making $7,000 running ABA softball um, to, and, and the revenue was about, oh gosh, it must've been about 30,000 in revenue if I recall, to the first year I was doing it full time, uh, or I should say the year I was just about to do it full-time, we were at 125000 in revenue, quickly went to two fifty the first year, wow. four twenty three the next year, and the year after that was 739000 in revenue. Dang, and that's still just locally? It was just, lo just Long Island Adult Men's Softball. We became the largest adult men's league in the state of New York wow. with almost 1,000 teams. That could have never happened if I kept the full-time job. Right. I had to do it. And I, was, and I did it remotely from Tampa, as a matter of fact, uh, unbeknownst to anybody with my 800 toll-free number that my uh, customers would call. <laughs> That's awesome. So what, you said that it was fragmented. The, the, the business opportunist saw, you saw the opportunity in the fragmentation of the league. Like what was it exactly, just out of curiosity, that you... Yeah, well, the fragmentation I saw in, in with competitors was that they weren't doing the basic blocking and tackling the fundamentals of a business really well. So they weren't providing, if you're, if you're participating in a league or in a, in a program, you expect like a schedule to be given to you on time, right? <laughs> you expect if you reach out to somebody that they actually call you back or they answer the phone, it would be nice. Uh, you expect to have the awards, you expect to have officials at the field you expect to have a decent playing field so those are like some of the basic things for my business that i knew i needed that my competitors were not doing right the but the fragmentation was also on a larger scale in that in the amateur sports industry, there are different associations like the Amateur Softball Association, ASA, or USSA, or the NSA. They're kind of like the governing bodies, but they don't, they, they oversee the sport, but they don't really oversee the actual business or the actual league. So everybody ran it their own way. That's what made it so fragmented is uh -huh. people did things their own way. And I know that people that are watching or, or listening to this know that in the industry they're interested in, there is some fragmentation. People are doing things a different way. And it's that little niche. It's that angle that which you can focus in on that's gonna make you the most successful. There is a gap and there was an opening in the marketplace for me. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. When you got into that, were you, I'm assuming that you went into it intentionally like, hey, this really is my passion. This really is where I get lit up in life. Why not pursue something in that direction? Is that correct? Would I be accurate to say that? Yeah. So, okay, here's what, here's what really happened. What really happened before I started <laughs> the softball league was, I knew that I had this passion, I wanted to do something. And I came up with this idea and it was called the, well, it was called the Amateur Ball Players Association. So it still was ABA and it was going to be like a players association, like a community of softball players. And I was going to create this newsletter and it was going to be like player, like equipment reviews and team rankings. Now this is before 
this is before the internet, right? So there wasn't even going to be like an online community. Mm-hmm. Peter, here's the truth. The truth is, is that that was a cop out. I realized the uh. only reason why I was going to do that is because it was out of fear that I was afraid to compete with the other leagues that were out there. 20, 30 years, they had all the business locked up. They had all the fields, they had all the umpires, they had all the teams. And me, by way of creating this, this player's association was really a weak business model that didn't have any profit. That didn't have a good profit model behind it. And when I had this realization, like, no, this is a cop out. I need to, I need to compete with these leagues. I need to be a competitor. Uh Um, That it was fear that was holding me back. Gotcha. That's really interesting. What was the, what was the transition point for you just to, to better understand when you were in the medical sales and it was just driving you nuts and you weren't, you didn't have uh, so many people I think are in that position where they, where they feel the golden handcuffs or, you know, at least in your uh, experience, it was golden handcuffs for a lot of people. It's probably, you know, like rusted metal handcuffs. Like (laughs) I have to be in this job that I hate. It's barely making ends meet, you know, like what was the, what was the transition point for you? Was there uh, a specific moment where you're like no more or was it? Yeah, there was a specific moment. It was a realization. It was a, probably about a year after my daughter was born that I had this realization of um, number one, I don't think I was put on this earth to live and be in a, a work in a place where I was settling, that it was going to be, it was plan B. You know, it was the backup plan. It was just going to be to get by. And when we had, when my wife and I had our daughter, the realization was that I think we were, you know, like, I can't imagine my daughter growing up and me telling her, honey, I would have, could have, should have, don't do as I did, do as yeah. I say. Yeah. That to me was incredibly motivating that I wanted to be an inspiration to my, you know, to my daughter. And now we have a son as well. And I wanted to be an inspiration to my kids. And my dad was not, he did not have the entrepreneurial spirit. He was super successful in his field. He was a guy who ran the heart-lung machine in New York City He in a hospital. So during open-heart surgery, he would run the machine. He was 30 years at the same hospital, well-known in his craft. So when I had this entrepreneurial spirit of wanting to start a business, he was you know, dead against it. He gave me all the reasons why it wouldn't work. Wow. And I had this feeling, Peter, of like, I want to be the kind of dad that I'm going to help my kids understand here's how something could work, not give you all the reasons why it won't work. I don't mean in that in a way to put my dad down because my dad didn't have the same entrepreneurial spirit. He loved me. He wanted me to win. He wanted me to succeed, but we just came from two different philosophies. And I felt so moved. Like I don't, I don't want to have any regrets in my in life. My wife and I had this mantra and that was live our life with no regrets. We're going to do, you know, we don't want to ever look back on life and say would have, could have, should have. I love that. When did you guys, uh, determine that like was we, that out of the gate did is that you know it was that part of your relationship yeah it was part of our relationship well we we moved to florida in, in 1996 because we want we wanted the change we wanted a fresh start when we got married and because our friends and family told us you'll never make it down there there are no jobs down here in the tampa Bay area and they gave us all the war <laughs> stories and they they said this alligator's walking across the street and this bug's this big <laughs> there's so much ridiculous stuff the funny part of that story is that all of those family that told us we would never make it and that we'd be back they all live down here <laughs> they all made their way here you know right. 
But again, it was sort of like we drew a line in the sand, like no more. I say that to anybody that's watching this. And if you have those golden handcuffs or rusted handcuffs and it's holding you back, what I'm going to say is that you may have those limiting beliefs that you couldn't be successful, that you are not hungry enough. Hunger is the number one trait I have found to be successful. You have to want it so bad and, of course, take massive action. But I tell you this because being in franchising as I have, I've been around hundreds of entrepreneurs. So this is not my story. This is, my, this is me sharing as a founder of a brand that grew it out, having seen hundreds of other people that have bought a business from me majority of which have never owned a business came from a job the wife was uncomfortable with the husband quitting the job and he wanted to do this because he loves sports um i was the guy who sat across from them at the desk that told them no you shouldn't do this because you know the wife wasn't comfortable or i was the one that said yeah you guys have got it you have the hunger i'm telling you the hunger is so important because it'll get you through those tough days where does where does hunger come from I think hunger comes from within. It comes from a drive that you want more out of your life. It comes from, and partially for me, it was maybe a little bit out of revenge that I had the doubters and naysayers in my life that I couldn't right. do it. Uh, but I think hunger comes from a belief that you're here to give more, to do more. I kind of use this phrase, and I and I, I know it can get misconstrued at times, but Peter, I've I've shared this. I felt this way way back when. I felt entitled to succeed in my business. And I know that's entitled has a, a bad a negative connotation to it today, right? Right. What I meant by that way back when was this feeling like, I feel like I'm put here to do this. Like I felt like I was the guy when I started running my softball league and wanted to franchise I-9 sports and franchise youth sports. I felt like I was supposed to do this. Like I put my time in. I was willing to do whatever it took for how ever long it was going to take and I'm entitled to succeed. I'm entitled to be the guy that's going to be a pioneer in this business. It wasn't arrogance at all. I think I'm a pretty humble person. I live through gratitude and humility has been my superpower actually mm -hmm. to believe that I can lose a business at any moment. But at the same time, I felt super freaking entitled to success. Like I am going to do this and I'm supposed to do it. Uh, I love that. And I hope that people feel, if you have that feeling like I'm entitled to do this in a way that I'm going to do whatever it takes for however long it takes, then I think you should go for your dreams and go for your business of your dreams. For sure. I, you know, being around entrepreneurs as my father was, my uncles, and I've been in that uh, environment a lot. I find that it is a smaller segment of people. There's a smaller percentage of people that are like that. And, and yet I've met so many people who have that entrepreneurial spirit, but they're like, you were surrounded by people who just, there wasn't an alignment there. And so everybody else around them was, it's too risky. You can't do it. Uh, blah, blah, blah. You know, and it's like these entrepreneurs keep bumping up against this glass ceiling. And one of the, the biggest advices I always have is to get around people like yourself, get around other entrepreneurs who feed off that energy and, and drive each other forward. And that passion just really can't help, but, you know, push you forward and, and, and take that leap. But you talk about a lot of how to calculate risk. Um, uh, I'm actually looking at your website right here to learn when to take a risk and to go all in banking on passion, not on security. Um, that 
that's a very difficult thing, I think, for a lot of people, especially the spouses of the person who's wanting to take that risk. Do you have any advice or uh, guidelines that somebody could take if they're in that position and they're wanting to take that risk, but how do they convince you know, or talk to the people closest to them and, and get them on board with that? Well, getting the spouse or partner or significant other on board to me is probably number one. They have to believe in your vision as well. So I would absolutely encourage anybody that's looking to get into a business to have that open conversation, that open dialogue, get the buy-in from your spouse, significant other, partner, because if you don't and you go off on this venture on your own, as soon as you have the tough day, the tough days that is inevitable in any uh, endeavor that we go through, you're going to hear, I told you so. I knew it was going to be a problem. So the first thing you want to do is get their support. Make it about together. Uh, I'll tell you that one of the, the, the secrets to my success is having my wife on board from the very beginning. So when I met my wife uh, and she was my girlfriend and I was starting my softball league and I started my softball league in 1995. We met in October of, of uh, 94 and she helped me run the league together. Well, together we were running. She was answering the phone. She was involved in it. So she saw the vision. She felt it and she was, you know, she bought into it. That was critical for my success because when I did go through tough times, she wasn't the person saying, I told you so. She was going, okay, let's figure this out. And she would help me see the light sometimes. Even as I grew I-9 Sports, and I'd come home totally stressed out. So that's the first thing I would say is you've got to get the, the spousal support. Um, the second thing about the calculated risk, well, I don't suggest anybody do anything that they're not completely comfortable with. Like don't necessarily quit your full-time career and just start the, this business without a safety net. Um, you have to do what's right for you. For me, it was I built my business up for four years. I saw the I saw the writing on the wall of what I could do with this business if I had more time. So I think about being smart. Writing out the pros and cons for me was always key. I know it's a real basic thing, but guys, if you know, getting writing out a sheet of paper. I mean, take out a sheet of paper, put pen and pencil to it. Here are the pros and cons of what we're looking to do. Because the beauty of that is, of course, it takes the emotion out of something that you're looking to do, and you can see it on paper and say, does this, does this make sense? So mm -hmm. whether it's starting a new business, what, maybe it's changing jobs because we also can have those handcuffs of, should I change careers or not? This is a safe, you know, safe job I've been in, but if it doesn't move you, if it doesn't give you juice, if you don't feel you, you, it doesn't drive you, then it's time to move on and do something else. Yeah. Of course, in this economy right now, this is a best time uh, than ever to change careers because of the unemployment being so low. So there's an abundance of jobs. It's not going to be like that forever. Mm -hmm. So if you're looking to change careers, you know, when would now be a good time as Tony would say to do that, right? right? Or starting a business is a fantastic time. And maybe you don't have to quit your job at the same time. Um, I would love to better understand a little bit of your growth and the success of I-9. And so you went from the, so you developed it locally. Um, at what point did you decide to franchise out and why did you choose that model? So yeah, right after we started running the Adult Men's Softball League in New York, then I learned in the mid to late 90s that the NFL was going to start um, offering flag football leagues for kids as an outreach program to promote the game of football. And when I read about this in, in one of the industry magazines, I thought, oh my gosh, okay, this could be huge because, well, back then, flag football was only something we played like in, in gym, right? In, in recess, school. Yeah. yeah, in recess, right? It wasn't really, there weren't leagues for it. And I thought, if I can take my system 
and process for how I run my adult men's softball league since the same basic principles of running leagues and could apply it to kids. I might be on to something. And I wanted to get to it before this thing took off. So Raina got my first league, got a hundred kids here in the Tampa Bay area. The very next season, I got 600 kids. And it was at that point that Nadine, my wife and I said, okay, we've got leagues now in New York. We have leagues in Florida. How are we going to expand this? And uh, of course, the initial thought, like most people, is okay, well, we'll open up some company owned locations and we have to hire a lot of people. That scared me to death because, one, I didn't have a lot of capital to go opening locations remotely. And secondly, I'd never really hired people before. Now I'm going to hire people remotely. So the thought after looking at other options was franchising. And I read a ton about franchising and I thought, wow, franchising, I get to use other people's money to invest in the business. Mm -hmm. So now they're opening their own, their own version of, of my business. Plus they'll have skin in the game. So they'll be even more motivated than an employee. Mm -hmm. So of course the downside of franchising is you're giving, you know, you're giving away some of your profit, but I could then grow so much faster. My expansion can go that much faster. Plus I wouldn't need so much more staff internally if they're responsible for their own staff. Mm -hmm. So I looked into franchising. I found a consulting firm out of Chicago called the iFranchise Group. Uh, Mark Siebert is the founder, fantastic guy, world-renowned franchise leader. Huh. And I told Mark, here, I've got leagues in New York and Florida. I don't know if this is franchisable. And he helped take my model and make it into a franchise, basically. And lo and behold, in 2003, i9 Sports was born. What what's the process of that? What's the process of franchising a business? Because, um, you know, in my mind, franchising can be extremely lucrative. But I also see it as like if you make a mistake, you're going to multiply your mistakes across <laughs> all of that too. How do you know? Like what what did he help you with to create the the franchisable model? Okay, well, let me just tell you something that I made lots of mistakes right after <laughs> franchising. So <laughs> let's get out of the way. It's going to happen. You are going to screw up because you don't even know what you don't know, right? Mm -hmm. So, but here's what he did. The first thing you need to do when you franchise your concept, before you franchise your concept, is you need to build a structure. What are you actually giving? What is the, the franchise model look like? Um, is the structure giving away an exclusive territory, which is what I did? How much territory do you even give a franchisee? I don't know. I went based on my own experience. Yeah. Shockingly, I gave away, or not shockingly, I say it with sarcasm, I gave away far too much territory. Mm. I didn't because with my business model, franchisees open, um, they have leagues in multiple communities, right? So they go and rent the fields from a school or a park or a church. I wanted to give the franchisees enough space to be rejected and to still have a, to get, get field space that they can have a successful league. Mm -hmm. So when I first started, I gave way, way too much, um, uh, way too much land. Now the the guy who helped consult um, structure the franchise, Mark, you know, he kind of gave me some uh, structures, some fences, and some recommendations on here's what other franchisors do. The problem with my franchise model was I was first in the industry to franchise youth sports. Nobody had done it before. Mm. So I had to kind of go on my gut. The other thing is I had to structure what sports am I going to do? How much royalty is going to be? Am I going to do a national brand fund? What am I going to do with that brand fund money? What's training and support going to look like? So Mark helped develop. Here's what training will look like. Here's what support will look like. Here's how to sell a franchise. Here's the things we say on a franchise sales call. So Mark helped line up all those things, the structure of it. 
Wow. Of course, you have to get a franchise disclosure document through legal, getting a lawyer to do that because you cannot franchise without getting a, a franchise disclosure document done and filed in the registration states. Right. How did you how did you maintain quality control of like the culture of so that that's consistent through all the different nine franchises? Great question. That is probably the most important thing to do is you don't want it to be the wild, wild west where everybody's doing it their own way. My goal was I wanted to be like a McDonald's as soon as I could. Again, the issue is when you start out your your franchise or your business that you franchise, you don't even know yet what the whole model is going to look like once you start multiplying out. So you try to put a fence around it. The key is get those initial franchisees buy-in to what you, what your vision is for your business, what you want it to be like. And then you really have to collaborate with them. Collaborate what, what, with. Sorry. So what was yeah. the vision that you were selling to your uh, franchisees? Yeah. So for I-9 sports, we were about fun, safety, and convenience is what our sports, those were the core values of I-9 sports. Fun meaning that it was about fun first. It was not going to be the highly competitive sports program. It was not going to be five days a week of practice leading up to the big game. It was going to be about practice same day, implemented. No fundraisers, no tryouts, no drafts. So we could see, we kind of put a structure around what I wanted the culture to be. It was structured mm -hmm. around fun, safety, convenience for the parents. It was about um, focusing on uh, rewarding the kids, not just for winning, but for good sportsmanship too. Mm -hmm. So we had like weekly sportsmanship values. The kid that best exemplified that value of the week, say teamwork, leadership, humility, whatever that might be that was age appropriate, that mm -hmm. kid would get a medal. So these were the things that we I knew the business I wanted to be about. I knew the sports, what they needed to be. You you can operate flag football, soccer, and basketball, which was the three sports we only did at first. And keeping the franchisees in check with, okay, they only could be leagues. We're not doing camps. We're not up to that yet. But as your model, as you start growing, you really want to collaborate with your franchisees and get their best practices. So you can't, you can't be sort of always top-down leadership. Even though you franchise and even though you think you have everything in place, you really yeah. don't. Fortunately for you and for anybody that's going to franchise their concept, the people who are willing to buy your franchise or invest in it early on, they're going to be much more entrepreneurial. Right. Right. They're going to be a renegade. They're going to be willing to do it. Right. It will also, they will also be your problem child, though, once you grow, <laughs> you start having structure and rules. So they were like, no, man, I didn't like the better. We didn't have any rules. Remember, I got to do it my way or yeah. we did this together. But the more you grow, the more you learn, the more systems and processes come into play. Yeah. That's just a natural part of the business. Well, and I would think to some extent too, because you've gotten so big that there's probably some differences with the franchisees, I'm guessing, maybe up in New England versus in the Midwest versus like just culturally, the New England culture versus the Midwest culture versus out West, you know, or whatever. Has that been the case? It has been a perception and a huge problem when we first started out. Interesting. So when we started out, because I started in the Tampa Bay area for kids sports, uh, I one of the things you hear in franchising, not I-9 sports uh, specific, but any franchise model, it's, well, you don't understand, it's different in my area. Here, right? That you hear with anything. But right. the fact is there are customers that want the similar things, right? right? So, And I was also told that I-9 sports would never work in Texas. You know why? Wow. because Texas wants real football. They want tackle football. <laughs> you know, I would have people tell me in Texas, 
kids are ordained at five years old. They're going to be the quarterback of the Southlake Dragons. That's bull. Because guess what? Not everybody's going to be a Southlake Dragon tackle football player. Fortunately, it's the 90% of the customers uh, of people that are out there that are parents that want their kids to have fun. They want to be safe. They want the convenience. So you have to stay true to your model to know that you're not going to be everything to everybody. But guess what? What changed the perception from my concept was we went from we're only going to be successful in Tampa, then we're only going to be successful in the South to we sold a franchise in Columbus, Ohio, and he was successful. Then we sold another one in Seattle, and he started to become successful. Sold one in California using our system. He started becoming successful. Slowly but surely, that myth dissolved. Uh And why don't we hear it anymore with our current franchisees? You Uh never hear it's different in my area. You never hear it won't work in my area because, because we just had enough successful examples that it could work. I so that. that's, a, that's a limiting belief because in any business, a McDonald's, Subway, Burger King, Wendy's, they seem to work no matter what region of the country. You may right. have a different flavor on a couple of things that you may adjust and do. But at the very foundation of our, of our company, it is what it is. There was going to be no tackle football. It's no fundraisers, no tryouts, no drafts. We were going to adhere to our core values. The product is the product. Um, when I used to live out in New England, in New England, uh, in Connecticut and, you know, things are a little, little more edgy, a little more, uh, you know, in your face, a little bold. And, and I kind of got that as a kid. And when we moved in the Midwest, I remember going through a fast food when we first got here and the lady, you know, handed us her food and gave us a really big smile and said, thank you so much. And I was just like, what's wrong with you? What is going on? So yeah, there's probably some cultural differences, but the product is the product. You're going to get the same thing either way i still got my my burger or whatever it was that we ordered of Um, course but you're right culturally there are going to be adjustments but the franchisee is also local so they get it culturally on how to interact with the customer it's still the model is the model and people parents want the same things for their kids no matter where you live it doesn't mean that we're going to be right for everybody there are going to be people that want their kid in a tackle football league who are going to be the high school athlete and maybe be the next tom brady Mm -hmm. but that's not the way our business model was structured anyway. You were never right. going to be play quarterback enough. Well, if you're going to play one day a week, you're not going to be the quarterback for anything, right? right. <laughs> but Dude, that's not what our model is for. Right. It really is centered on the idea of this is fun. And it sounds like maybe that that was your experience too. Like after the realization that you weren't going to be, you know, the, the all-star uh, quarterback or whatever, that like right. it's still freaking fun. I still love exactly. getting out of that. Right, right. Um, well, you talk about in your book, um, the entrepreneurial identity crisis, um, where you are not your business. So I would imagine at some point as the business was growing, that that became an issue for you. Tell us a little bit more about Oh, gosh, it's rough. Here's what happens. When you first found your business, you were breathing, eating, drinking, sleeping your business. Mm-hmm. And that's where the identity of you and the business are one starts to form. Mm-hmm. Because you do, you're living it 24 hours a day, right? You're telling everybody about your business. There, how's it going? It's going good. It's going terrible. You're reading about it. You're learning about it. You're you're operating it slowly, slowly but surely. You and your business become one to the point when, if your business is going well, you're in a good mood, and when your business is not going well, it tanks your entire mood. Like it takes yeah. down your life. Yes. That's when you have the. When I had the realization, I went through this. That wait a minute. I am more than my business and my business is more than me. 
And when I had this realization, I had talked to a fellow CEO of a franchise concept, actually a 1-800-GOT-JUNK, Brian Scudamore. Who's, yeah, he's been on the program. He's amazing. Oh, okay. Brian, so I found Brian uh, was written up in a franchise publication um, about when he hired his first COO president. And I read about Brian's situation. I was like, oh my gosh, I think I'm there. Like I have this identity crisis where I need to be everything to the business and we're so intertwined. And I read the article, I called Brian up. I'm like, Brian, I saw you hired somebody. Like, how did you get past like you doing everything? And I'll never forget, he said to me, Frank, you'll just know when it's time. When the business is bigger than you, it's mm-hmm. time for you to get out of your own way. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you know, as, as simple as that was, that made total sense to me to hire for my weakness, not hire for my strength. You know, my strength is the visionary. I'm the idea guy. It was painful for me to do the systems and processes. Yeah, I did it, but that was not my wheelhouse. So I hired for my weakness. I hired somebody who his strength was a manager leader, implementing processes, leading an organization, communicating with people. And today he is the CEO of Binance Sports. We are yin and yang. And it, it, it's what took our company, it had the company take off. That's such a that's such a difficult glass ceiling to break through for entrepreneurs. I see entrepreneurs do it all the time. I remember watching my father as his business grew, hit that and, you know, you talk about identity, like it's easy to just throw that out there as this, um, oh, it's hard as a business goes up and down, like, yeah, you're tied to it or whatever. But like when you really are identified with the business, the idea of letting go, delegating out, hiring people to, to fill in your, your weaknesses, like, it's like, yeah, but then who am I? Like if I don't show up and I'm not in this business, uh. what do I do with my time anymore? How did your identity expand when you broke through that threshold? Ah, well, you you just hit the gold, and that's the holy grail right there, Peter. It's because I realized it took through the pain that I went through this. I wasn't this, I didn't have these brilliant ideas as I was going through the process. It was more reflective. If you really, really love your business, you give it what it needs, and you get out of your own way, and also... The business is not about you. It was never about you. Mm. It was about, it was contributing to your life and to the life of others. It was about growing. It was about a mission that you're on. When you get to that point where you realize the business is bigger than you, um, and you realize that, wait a minute, this business, the goal is to hire people that are going to, I'm going to surround myself with people that are better than me. Um, You start living a life that's more fulfilling and for me, it was I started growing, and then I got to the point where the company I quote unquote hit the top. Like in other words, like I the vision for my business was sort of topped out, and I realized, wait a minute, this business was always about fulfillment, mm-hmm. and I'm no longer fulfilled. Mm-hmm. I think it's time for me to move on, even though I love this business with all my heart, but is this business about you or is it about something greater? That's the big question for an entrepreneur. They, they have to answer it themselves. Mm-hmm. Otherwise you're not going to break through the glass ceiling. If you feel I'm, I am the, I'm going to be the business. I'm never going to get past it. Well, fine. Then I guess that the business is only going to go as far as you're willing to take it. Yeah. Or do you really love this freaking thing? Is this thing supposed to be bigger than you and maybe live beyond you? I had this epiphany that this business is supposed to live longer than me. Mm-hmm. I want it to be that big. Mm-hmm. What are some of the the elements or the testimonials, case studies of 
you on the right path? Like what, what are some of the things where your customers or maybe even their, their kids coming back to you? Like, how did you know that you were heading in the right direction and, and that the, you were getting the right feedback from your end customer, your kids and, and the, of course their parents? Well, he, he, the thing that I least expected, I was kind of shocking is that I thought I was in the sports business is I thought that's what I was doing, right? Cause I did, cause I love sports. It was only until I started getting some very unique customer feedback or um, uh, interaction with customers that I learned that something else was happening here. The first one was, I'll never forget. There was a, a Facebook post by a mom who was inspired to write on our web, write on our Facebook page that her five-year-old son the night before his first game told his mom that he was going to score his first touchdown and win the sportsmanship value. And she writes game day. He scored his first touchdown and won the medal. And she said, as he ran down the field to all the cheers and, and applause, the look on his face is a memory I'll never forget. And I was like, Holy crap. Like this is bigger than, me and my stupid idea of just liking sports <laughs> like we're actually impacting impacting people's lives here that when you can create memories that they're going to last a lifetime you've hit the holy grail in business and that is something that disney uh that's disney's goal is disney wants to attach happy memories vacation happy memories disney vacation happy memories disney that's i learned this when i went to a marketing to moms conference where disney executives talked about their their objective is to get people to attach their happy memories when i heard disney talk about that these executives i thought oh my gosh my business is like we're automatic right we create happy memories mm-hmm Second one, most impactful story That's was, yeah, my, right, mind-blowing to realize that you're impacting people was there was a franchisee of ours in South Florida that was watching the local six o'clock news and there was a home that was on fire and the, the mom, uh, the, the lady, the, her house was being burned down. She was on camera crying. Her son is standing next to her and he had an I-9 sports jersey on. Hmm. The franchisee figured out who it was called the local franchisee who uh, she was a customer of his and said, Hey, I think one of your customers, her home is on fire. She's lost everything. It sounds like her kid has an I-9 jersey. That's how I know, you know, who she is. They figured out, you know, got the name. Well, this franchisee called her up and said, I'm so sorry to hear about this. Um, is there anything we can do in the community? And she said that we've lost everything. I, I you know, appreciate you calling. We've lost everything. And my son wanted one thing out of that house. It was the metal. Come on, man. I got home that night. I was told that story and I got home that night and I'm telling my wife and kids and I have never cried in front of my kids at the dinner table. And I got so choked up. I still get worked up hearing the story because I realized then that the metal that Peter costs like what, a couple of dollars for that metal. Right. It meant more to that kid than it ever meant to us as adults, we forgot what it was like to play sports. Mm. It was that realization that I am, this business is, is, has so much more meaning than just X's and O's more than marketing operations, more than the customer service, more than just putting on a good operation. It was meaning more to this kid's life. So that is what I'm talking about. Getting out of your own way and doing something that you're completely passionate about that you're actually serving for a greater good. I love that story. I love that example. And 
one of the things that we've learned going through Tony Robbins' stuff, which is so profoundly mind-blowing when you really get down to it, as business owners, you're not doing the thing that you think you're doing. You're not selling the thing that what you're ultimately doing is you are selling the feeling. You are, you are giving them an experience and you tapped into that and nailed it. And what a beautiful testament to what you, you have set up. That, that's phenomenal. I love that. I hope people who are listening to this, the entrepreneurs that are listening to this, really internalize that and I think about so. how to apply that in their own business. Stop selling your product. Sell them the, the internal emotional experience, the, the new identity. You, you, you sold that boy. Like, what is the ripple effect of that one child? You know what I mean? There are so many one stories. Child. Yeah, well, exactly. One child that he was happy that he got his medal or the kid that suffers from autism and the mom never felt comfortable putting him in a sports league. And then she registers him in online sports and he is so welcomed by his teammates and he's able to play like every other kid. I mean, it's like things like that. I, I give that example because in your, in everybody's business that's watching this, there is something much bigger than you that your business is actually providing. If you're providing a B2B service, you realize that you're helping somebody achieve their dream, that they wanted to start their business. They were told by all these people, their doubters and naysayers and their family and friends told them their business would never do well. And maybe it's a, it's a B2B service that you're providing that's helping them overcome all those doubters and naysayers and helping them have financial freedom and affect other people. You know, what's so funny is when I talk to certain types of entrepreneurs, not all of them, but certain ones, they think that this is fluff. They think that this, oh, that, you know, that I'm not in the business. I'm not, you know, I'm not a nice guy. I'm not here to just make people feel, I'm here to make money. I'm here to get, yeah. results. I'm here to, and it's like, dude, do you have any idea how much more profitable it is to do the right thing, to care, <laughs> to give a shit, to go that extra mile? Can you give us a little glimpse without, you know, obviously I know some of that information is sensitive, but how yeah. big is the business now? How many franchises do you have? What, what level of scalability have you reached? Yeah, so I went from having that mantra, that model, the model of I'm going to grow this thing and make it as big as I can. It's all about money. It was all about dollars and cents. So what would you say if we grew this thing to now it does $50 million annually. It has almost 1,000 locations nationwide in 30 states. It didn't happen because we were solely focused on dollars and cents. Yes, we had to be focused on our, on our EBITDA. We are focused on the X's and O's but we do it with a passion first. We do it with a purpose. I know what our vision for a company is and all of our franchisees have that vision that we all believe in one thing. I would welcome to compete with people who are only focused on the numbers. I love that industry. Right. Let right. me have that because yeah. I know how to get to their customers that they're so blinded by thinking so it's blinded. only about the dollars. I welcome that industry. Yeah. I love to be in it. I want to be in that. Yeah, uh, it's a massive competitive advantage when you get that, uh, yeah. for sure. Um, you talk about in your books, A Spiritual Awakening, and I'm, we've already been sort of discussing this, but was there, uh, you're talking about expanding your self-awareness um, through, through, through the experience. Is there, is there more that you have to teach us in that respect than what we've already covered? Or Yeah, so I had this realization, so you hear about all of my, my passion for I-9 sports, but I actually hit a... I hit a point where I said, I think that it's time for me to move on, mm -hmm. but I had this incredible amount of guilt. So for those of you that are watching this, that own your business and you're no longer fulfilled, but you have an incredible amount of guilt, like how could you possibly give this up? This business is your purpose. I want to share with you that 
I had this spiritual awakening. I went to this resort called Miraval in Tucson, Arizona. And it's, it's all about learning mindfulness. And I had this realization that I had stored up so much self-rejection, so much shame, so much guilt about life in general that I had been battling. And I realized the war is over for me that I can now let go. In other words, letting go of I-9 sports wasn't mean that I was giving up my business, but it was time for me to move on and move on to a next mission. The spiritual awakening, Peter, was that my I-9 sports was not my purpose. It was one of a series of missions and that my next mission is how do I take everything I've learned and how do I help entrepreneurs through, through a book, through speaking, through retreats or workshop? I don't know yet. I'm kind of, I'm still coming out the other side, but I realized that I nine sports was not my end all be all. Mm. And that was so freeing. So I want you to know that. And for people that are not sure, and they think maybe it's time for them to move on, but they're not sure how they can do it. It's an incredibly freeing feeling to have an exit. So my next mission after this is I want to create this exit academy. I want to help people with life after exit because I want people to know that you can have a super fulfilling life taking what you've learned and exit to a very more fulfilling life in the next next phase of your of your life. That is so powerful because a lot of people lack the vision because they've they're they're living into their broadest vision and they don't know what's beyond that. And you're giving scary. It is scary. It's identity. It's the whole identity thing. If, if, if you're so identified with living within that vision that you've set for yourself, well, what's beyond that? And whatever's beyond that is an unknown and unknown is scary. Even if it's quote unquote better, bigger, more fulfilling, whatever, but it's like, what is that actual thing? But to actually create a community where it's like, oh, okay, I can see a bridge to that next level. That's, that's huge. And of course you're talking about people who have already achieved a certain level of success that can make uh, can amplify a positive influence in the world. That's phenomenal. Right. That's so cool. I had to, I was, it had, there was total utter darkness though. You got to know that when I was selling I-9 sports, I had no idea what I was going to do. It wasn't like I said, Oh, I'm going to write this book and I'm going to speak to entrepreneur grad students. It took a couple of years for me to get through what they call the tunnel. So I was in this tunnel where I didn't see the light. I didn't know what was on the other side. I knew it was time for me to move on. But when I had that spiritual awakening of, it's okay. I got to let go. Lead with fun. Lead with knowing that it'll in due time, it'll come when I need to do next. Now yeah. I fast forward and tell you all these things I'm going to do. It didn't uh-huh. happen like that where I knew though. Yeah. I'm like everybody else. It was scary. It was dark and I didn't know, but I knew it was time to move on. I had to have that faith that I'm going to find what I do next. Um, and going to be provide even more value than I've ever provided in my lifetime. That's phenomenal. So you mentioned a term there that I want to shift gears just a little bit on. Um, And I've talked about this on the podcast before where we talk about the stages of masculine development, where uh, a young boy starts at a page, then he moves into the knight stage, and then the prince stage, and then ultimately a king. Um, But between that prince and king stage, for those are are not familiar with it, this is, uh, this is from Alison Armstrong's world and her books, who I've had on the podcast before, you should check that out. But um, she talks about that prince stage being something where a man starts to build his own kingdom. He has a sense of the kingdom that he wants to build and he starts to build it. And then the king is really wants that the kingdom is established. He's built it. He's got his, you know, in your case, a business. He's, he's uh, affecting his kingdom for the good. But between those two stages is what Allison calls the tunnel. And Tony Robbins talks about that too, going through that tunnel um, where it's a very dark period. And 
Tony landed this so hard when he was explaining it to us. He's like, look, there is only two possible paths for the tunnel. It's either you make it and you become a king or you freaking die. So mm-hmm. I've wanted to talk to somebody who's been through the tunnel, and this is a great opportunity to do that, to better understand. And again, I, now I'm wearing my relationships hat as opposed yeah. to like a business hat. What was that like as a man to, to go through that phase? And how, like, how did you survive that? And what were your, what were your biggest needs during that phase? How did you get out of it? Yeah. So I went through a period of depression for sure, where I felt guilty. Like, how dare I, how dare I have a successful business and not feel fulfilled? Mm -hmm. And my wife, though, she was supportive my whole career. My wife went through that experiencing me going through this tunnel, which as you and I know, learning from through what Allison teaches and what Tony teaches, it's very hard for the spouse to see, my wife to see this. I would tell you that um, fighting through that tunnel period of darkness required me to have a lot of that self-reflection on what I've done and um, knowing that I need to need to move on. When I realized that I need to sell on end sports, because it was time for me to move on from it was when I started to see that light. Mm. And when I had that realization that, you know, I could love online sports from a distance. It was selling the majority interest in the company and saying that as a minority owner and board director, I get to play almost like the role of like a grandfather where I get to play with the kids and give it back to mom and dad. Right. But I get to still be connected to it. I tried everything, Peter. I started writing more. I took, I took up guitar lessons. I had never picked up a guitar in my life. I wanted to just, it was an example of me trying all these new things out, basically trying to get through the freaking tunnel, right? It was being around peer groups. It was getting coaching. I had a life coach that was helping me. Um, It's what got me through the tunnel was starting to have a new vision, willingness to create a new vision for myself. Mm. So for me, that new vision was, I've had all these years of all this experience and all these highs and lows. It would be a complete waste at all the pain I went through if I don't somehow capture this in a book and share it with others. Mm. Again, I wasn't leading with money. Look, we don't, we don't make money selling books. Unless you're J.K. Rowling's, you're not going to make a whole bunch of money selling a book. I wrote the book because I wanted to share with people my entrepreneurial journey of highs and lows. I want to take them on a psychological roller coaster to help get through them through the tunnel. When you start thinking about other people first, mm. that sort of gets you through that tunnel. I consider myself and my wife would agree. We just went to the relationship trip in Maui with, with yeah. Tony. And we looked at each other and we're like, yeah, I'm, I'm a new king is what I am. I haven't been a king very long. I'm a new king. I got through the tunnel. Uh, and becoming a new king meant I have a new vision. I'm starting to share that new vision out, such as like having this talk with you and having the book out there. But getting through the tunnel means you've got to try out new things. You have to be willing to go through the darkness. You have to be creating a new vision for yourself and putting your spouse first. Don't leave your spouse out. I had to put Nadine first. That was tough for me because I always put the business first and my wife and kids always came in second and third mm-hmm. uh, at times, not all the time, but it was always a trade. It was always like trading time. But I realized that to have really a lifelong health and happiness, I had to put my spouse first, had to put my kids of course first and although my kids are getting older and don't need me like the way they used to mm-hmm. um, it's a realization that life is more than just a business I wanted mm-hmm. to look back again with no regret uh, I love that it, it is really like uh, I 
many men, I think, relate to their businesses, many entrepreneur men relate to their businesses as a child. And that's a great metaphor because, of course, you're not going to have the child live with you forever. They need to grow beyond you. Right. Um, so are, are you okay on time? I wanted to ask you yeah. another little, okay. So um, you talked about the psychological roller coaster, and I want people to have an understanding of, of the, the journey that you've been on. What was your, what was your youth like? You, you talk about this rags to riches story. What was the, what were the rags like? So my lived in a grew up in Long Island with mom and dad, they were married. And by second grade though, they got divorced. And after they got divorced, I went through this crazy, uh, crazy life. I would say a tale of two lives. Um, so my sister and I lived with my mom. Uh, my dad, uh, he got, he uh, moved on and he got married. And my dad had all the money. He had the big house in Long Island with the boat in the back and the canal and the, you know, the pool and everything else. And my mom and sister and I moved to Queens. Uh, we moved from apartment to apartment at one point living in this um, brick, uh, four-story brick building in College Point, Queens with cockroaches walking, you know, running up the walls when you put the kitchen lights on and kitchen, um, uh, you know, not having electricity all the time and the phone disconnection notices and lived a pretty crappy financial life. And it was very confusing for me to go to my dad's every other weekend and see wealth and live in poverty at times. So my mom though taught me something really uh, pivotal. And that was that a home, a house is just four walls and a ceiling. A home is what you make it. Mm Mm-hmm. And I had this hunger from an early age, knowing that I am never going to allow myself to live in financial poverty. And certainly one day when I get married and have kids, they are never going to, I'm never going to allow them experience this. Mm-hmm. And maybe my, part of my hunger and drive came from this, you know, rags uh, and poverty childhood that I had. I also learned though in seeing wealth and all that it isn't the end all be all that money does not provide happiness. So I use that story not to put, my, either with my parents down, look, I, it is what it is. That's the right. story that it was. My dad also provided a lot of great things in my life. He paid for my private high school education, paid for my college education, gave us, you know, paid alimony and child support, though it wasn't enough to live a, a, a base foundation for us. Uh, I learned a lot from him as well. He did help me get my first job in medical sales. But I say that, that you can take, take your past and use it to fuel you. Don't use it as an excuse or limiting beliefs that I can't do this because of my past. You can. Mm-hmm. And if you came from wealth in your background, use that as your strength that I've got a base foundation of how to do these things to make it even bigger in my future. Yeah. Um, that's a little bit more my upbringing where, um, you know, when I was younger, we were not crazy wealthy or anything like that. Um, my father was investing all his time and energy into uh, his work and then ultimately his business when he started that. And uh, I've lived a relatively comfortable life for, by most people's standards. And that's been a challenge to be totally transparent uh, is it, it's hard to be hungry sometimes when everybody's like, would you like something to eat? Which, how about this? Can I feed you this? Can I, it's like, oh, I'm not that hungry, you know, metaphorically, right? Yeah, it's yeah, comfortable. Yeah. It feels good. Um, but there was a light that went off in my head and, uh, some of that came from my conversation with David McElvaney. I don't know if you know who he is, but he wrote a book called, um, uh, shoot, it's slipping my mind. I think it's intentional legacy, if I'm not mistaken, but he talks about the generational wealth, passing it down, how to, 
how to continue to make it grow. And it was like mm-hmm. exactly what you just said. It was a realization. Uh, and I had to work through my own, some of my own guilt. Like I've just been handed all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Like this is amazing. I, I, I've taken vacations that most people dream of and we do them two, three times a year. It's like, mm-hmm. and there was d- definitely a lot of guilt, but then it was the realization, like it's still my bullshit story. Right. Drop that story and just right. look at the opportunity that you have to try to pay it forward. And that's the path I'm on right now is how do I take this and it's make beautiful. it bigger and try to try to help and, and serve other people to honor my father's sacrifices. Yes. Uh, that's beautiful. That's yeah. beautiful. And that's just the work. It's, it's, it feels kind of unique and different. Like, how do I create this? But yeah, you've created this vision, which is incredible. That's what I want to do with my kids. So my kids have been very humble. We've, they, they have humility. They don't expect much. They have the life far beyond what I had, right? And we do the crazy vacations and all the stuff. You know, my first trip to Europe was their first trip to Europe and all those things. So you want to help them create a vision to create something bigger. Yes. Well, and, and I, I also received a similar um, awakening too that money isn't the end all be all. And it's been a huge gift with my parenting to my kids is that time, you know, just presence and love giving them presence and love. Um, anyway, I, I, uh, I feel like you and I could probably talk for a long time. I love what you've created, what you've done, the impact that Thank you've you. made, the vision that you now have moving forward, the new identity, the, the expanded identity and continuing to grow. And I know that idea is going to bless a lot of other entrepreneurs, a lot of other business owners who uh, are of like mind where they're looking to make a difference. Um, so thank you so much for your time. It's an honor to speak with you. You're king. And I want to honor that. I, you know, <laughs> for those that have been through the Tony Robbins experience and his whole lecture on, on the, like he, he helps you really understand that these aren't just little words. There's deep sacrifice that goes into it and the spouses and frankly, the families that go through that tunnel, that go through the, that whole experience. It's a huge, uh, uh, undertaking and i i acknowledge you and honor you for having survived it (laughs) looking to expand it so very cool thank you so much peter i i just feel like look i feel like this is my uh, my gift is to share my experience because if i can save somebody's life or save somebody so much pain because i went through it it would feel like again it'd be a complete waste of all my pain if i don't get the opportunity to help others through it so that's my big motivation is to help others now through, uh, you know, through the tunnel, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. Um, for those that are interested in, in maybe reaching out to you, are you willing to, uh, I don't know if that's something you want to do. What, yeah, where can they yeah. go to find out more about you? And Well, the first the easiest thing is that my website. It's frankfume.com. That's F-I-U-M-E.com. I'm also really active on Instagram. Instagram and Facebook, you can find me frankfumei, because I'm frankfumei the second. You can also find me on LinkedIn and Twitter at frankfumei. And uh, yeah, I'd love to interact with people. And if I could help them in any way, um, that's why I'm here. Fantastic. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Thank you, Frank. I really appreciate it.